Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Welcome to today's episode, How a Union Soldier Changed My Life. Our guest today is history teacher and Civil War reenactor Doug Dobbs, who will tell us how his interest in history and family research led him to make significant changes in his life. Doug, welcome to Your History, Your Story. It's a delight to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Terrific. So I'm going to start by getting a little background information from you. So where are you from? Where did you grow up? I originally grew up in Bedminster, New Jersey, uh, which is right near where Hunterdon, Morris, and Somerset counties all come together. My mom had been a school teacher before our family got started. So there were always books and education, and and, uh, that was just a part of life for us. And my dad was a building contractor, so we always were talking about buildings and drawings and having adventures. He liked to travel. He would drag us around the countryside in a little Airstream trailer. I sort of grew up with that sense of the world as an interesting place to go explore. Did you grow up around any other relatives or people who used to tell stories or share information about their past? Yeah, my mom in particular had a very strong oral history in her family that goes all the way back to the founding of New Amsterdam back in the 1600s. I have become the inheritor of all those old stories, and uh, it's been very delightful to go back and, and fact check them as I've become an adult and find out that most of them are true. That's good information to know about. And I know that oral history is sometimes the richest history because there's a lot of passion behind it. And you get to hear Indeed. stories about people in your family who contributed to American history. So tell me Indeed. a little bit about your educational background. What happened when you went to college? Well, I was a terrible student in high school, but when I hit college, uh, my life had turned around. And so my first semester in college, I had a B plus average, which stunned everyone, including myself. From there, the the lamp of learning got lit and it just became an all-consuming fire. Ended up with a, a bachelor's degree in psychology from Simpson University, now University College back then, uh, 1979 in San Francisco. Then I went back to graduate school in 1983 to 85 and got a master's in marriage, family, and child counseling from Biola University in Los Angeles. And then I went back, worked on a PhD program at Virginia Tech in marriage and family therapy between about 87 and uh, about 90, 91. Uh, Unfortunately, I went through a series of health crises and relationship breakup, and that sort of went by the wayside. I never did finish that degree, but it's education and the value of schooling has been a big part of my life. So did that lead into a career in family therapy? It did. I moved to Hagerstown in 1995, uh, Hagerstown, Maryland, and uh, joined a private practice here uh, and practiced in town here for about three or four years. I had a a great time there, but unfortunately it was at a point when the insurance companies weren't paying very well and I could make a lot more money doing something else. So I I stopped out for a while and I designed websites and and worked in the dot-com bubble stuff. I was really good with computers and enjoyed that. And then the dot-com bubble burst And I took a job with a local credit card company for a while just to put bread on the table. And from there, I was offered an opportunity to become a high school history teacher. I had not taught high school before. I taught at university when I was down in my PhD program. But uh, that was a bit of a challenge, a little steep learning curve there. But uh, I soon learned the ropes and and have been doing that since 2003. So I'm sort of self-taught on that score. So let me ask you something. Your life was changed by a Civil War veteran. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what that means? Sure. My middle name is Dow, D-O-W. I like Dow Jones, but no relation. My parents had my last name, of course, is Dobbs, and and they they liked Douglas as a first name, but they were searching for something euphonious to put in the middle and came up with Dow, an old family name. 
So I was the only person in the world at that point with carried his name. So I grew up with this connection to a Civil War soldier, not knowing too much about it, just knew he was back down the family tree someplace. I'd been given a uh, photograph of him as a child. I had stuck it on my bedroom door. So there was that talisman sort of always around, but I didn't really know much about him. And then in the 1980s, when I was in my master's program, as part of uh, the self-discovery, self-understanding process of that, they encouraged us to research our family trees. And so I began to go back and dig in and find out a little bit more about this character, James Dow, and how I got his name and what he did with his life. And was quite enthralled by the things that I learned from him. He was quite a man. Then fast forward to 1997, and I was in Hagerstown, Maryland here at the time. I saw in all the newspapers there was going to be this 135th anniversary reenactment of the Battle of Antietam. And I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. So I contacted some folks that I had contacted a few years before. The internet had been born by this time, and I made some contact with a fellow in New Jersey who reenacted the 15th New Jersey, which was the unit that my great-great-grandfather had been in. Not only that, but the very company he had been in, Company E of the 15th New Jersey. And I said, are you guys coming down to this thing? I'd come to like to see what Grandpa looked like. I'd like to come and meet you. They said, well, if you'd like to come to the reenactment, tell us what your measurements are. We'll get you a uniform. You can come in and see it from the inside. Come out in the field with us. And I was like, oh, well, I'm a you know, professional and you know, standing in the community and you know, blah, 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 you know, running around and dressing up and you know, playing soldier just you know, was not part of my view of the world. <laughs> and so I, I called my sister and said, Jan, you're not going to believe the crazy uh, invitation I just got. And I told her all about it. And she said, oh, Doug, stop being a stuffed shirt. Uh, and how often do you get invitations like this? And I thought, well, okay, part of what I do is being adventurous and trying out new things and exploring. So I thought, well, okay, I'll go and try it. So I gave my measurements, and I'm a tall, skinny fellow. I look like a drinking straw. And they emailed back and said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, that's me. Yeah. And they said, well, we'll try and find something. I arrived at the reenactment site and went out to the parking lot, and a guy opened up the back doors of his big Ford passenger van, started throwing stuff over his shoulders. You need some of this, and you need some of that. And I'm catching the stuff as it flies out of the back of the van, going, what in the world? And so I've got my arms full of this stuff. And I'm like, okay, where's the changing rooms? We're out in a big field with, you know, thousands of cars. And he says, just go to the front of a van, drop trout, you know, put it on. And I did. And, you know, tentatively looking around. And, and but I just really can't explain to you what came over me at that point. But something happened to me when I put on that blue suit. I knew I just had to do this. It was going to be important to me. And I just had to do this thing. So I came back and got involved and put on the gear and went out in the field with them. And I've been a reenactor ever since. Died in the wool and they just can't get rid of me. Oh my goodness. So let me ask you this question. Did reenacting and going through that process connect you more with your great-great-grandfather? Oh, absolutely. It really has transformed my life in so many ways. I feel closer to him as an individual, having studied his life and dug up things about him. I know tons more than about him than I ever did as a child, probably enough to write a book about if I were to you know, put it all together. And I've organized events, uh, marches that have gone 120 miles from Northern Virginia all the way to Gettysburg, retracing the route that his unit marched on the way to the Battle of Gettysburg. Three times now we've retraced that route. It's a week-long affair, and we cover 120 miles. The very last day, they covered about 35 miles in 17 hours to get to the Battle of Gettysburg. When I put this event on, my tagline for it has been, some people were heroes on the battlefield, some were heroes just to get there. When you're walking along the road and you're looking at the same hills that he looked at and you're walking up the same inclines and you're feeling the knapsack straps cut into your shoulders and you're feeling thirsty and you're just waiting till the next time you can stop and you know get your off your feet and you're concerned about what's going on around you and what's happening now and you don't know much about what you, you know, what's going on except what you can see, uh, you're sort of cut off from things in the world. You really do get as close as I think you possibly can to the experience of a Civil War soldier. And 
I've got a pretty good imagination. So I, I can stand on the edge and look into the rest of it and sort of fill in the blanks. But I, I really do feel a deep kinship with him. He didn't survive the war. Had he not had his daughter before he went off to war, I wouldn't be here. Mm. And uh, so I, I really feel that deep longing on his part to see his daughter grow up. I've got three of his letters that talk about his love for her and his longing to see her. I feel very close to him, even though, of course, hundred and some years separate us. I really feel like I've entered into as much of his experiences as humanly possible. Wow. Do you know or can you tell us how he died? What happened? The circumstances? Sure. On, I think it was May 4th, 1864, they set off from Brandy Station, Virginia, and headed down to what we've since called the Overland Campaign, trying to trap Bobby Lee's army, uh, bring it to bay, and get between them and Richmond and capture Richmond and destroy Lee's army. This is the big campaign of U.S. Grant in the spring of 64. So for a month, they marched all the way down from just a little bit west of Fredericksburg, Virginia, and basically dug their way all the way to Richmond. Trenchments cover almost the entire distance there, some 60 miles, I think it is. They marched and fought and marched and fought and fought and marched. The Battle of the Wilderness, Spotsylvania, they were at the Mule Shoe there. They were at the North Anna. And then finally, on June the 1st, they arrived at a place called Cold Harbor, Virginia. It's just about five or six miles east of downtown Richmond. As they swung into position there on the line, they come up within less than 100 feet of the muzzles of Confederate cannon. The cannon are up on a hill above them, so they can't depress the muzzle enough to shoot down at them. But they're very, very close. They're in extreme danger. There's very open ground. There's no shade. It's a very hot day. So they're sending men to the rear with canteens to get water because they're just parched. They've marched a long way through the night to get there and then swung into this position, had to dig in uh, and dig their entrenchments, and they're just dry as a bone. So he ran to the rear with canteens for his friends and was shot in the back when he hit the creek and killed. The regimental history records his death. He was buried on the field. And when they came back later on to recover remains, his remains were never recovered. So he's somewhere on the battlefield out there. There's a big ossuary, a collection of bones there at the National Battlefield at Cold Harbor. So he may be residing there. Uh, he may be in some unmarked grave out on the field there. I don't know. But he lost his life there. He, he lost his brother and his brother-in-law at Spotsylvania just a few weeks before. Everyone who went to war with him basically uh, didn't come home. Kind of a sad, sad affair. One time I was uh, giving a first-person uh, presentation as James uh, to a group of historians. After I had finished what I was doing, I, I broke character and, and spoke as myself and so on and so forth. And then people came up to say some nice things. And a gentleman came up to me who clearly had a you know, military background, and he shook my hand and says, you've served, haven't you? And I said, no, I've never had the honor. He sort of had a crestfallen look on his face, and he, he turned half away, and then he, he turned back and grabbed my hand again and said, but you understand. And that is the greatest honor that anyone has ever given to me. That's a very close fellowship of combat veterans. And basically, he said, I understood what they went through, and that, that's, they don't give that kind of praise to anybody. And I've been very moved by that all my life since. Oh, boy, I tell you. How old was your great-great-grandfather when he was killed? Do you know that? Yeah, he, was, he would have turned 24 that year, but I don't think he quite reached his birthday. I want to ask you a question that as a reenactor, you're not having real bullets whiz by your head or anything like that. or Hopefully not. Shells. Something's wrong if that happens. <laughs> something is wrong. Yeah, something's gone wrong in the planning there. I guess. That's right. <laughs> but as you said, you were able to kind of feel what it was like with the hard marching mm -hmm. and the gear mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. camp life. If you could mm. summarize a little bit for us, what was camp life like for a Union soldier during the Civil War? Boring. <laughs> <laughs> the, men, the men complained about the boredom. 
other combat veterans have used the phrase that, you know, that army life is, you know, 99% boredom and 1% sheer terror. And I think that's probably fairly true for most of the Civil War soldiers as well. It was a lot of sleeping on hard ground, eating food over, you know, cooked on a campfire, pulling drill, uh, you know, day in and day out, pulling sentry duty out on the, on the perimeter of the army, standing in with a fully loaded weapon in the middle of the night, listening for every snap of a twig, not knowing what's going to happen next, writing letters home to your family, getting letters from your family, maybe a package now and then. Maybe there's a diversion of a, somebody comes in and sings songs and has a drama or something like that. But it's just an awful lot of hard work. Um, digging entrenchments, digging in for the winter and building winter huts. Not a whole lot of it. You know, if you count up the time they were actually in combat, it's not very much time. A lot of it was just walking from place to place and you hurry up and wait. It was not a very exciting life, but they did their duty and they stayed there. In the Civil War, there was a phrase they called French leave. French leave meant you ducked out and scooted back home and got some R&R and then came back. Oftentimes, the powers that be would turn a blind eye to that because they understood it was uh, good for morale. But uh, as far as I know, uh, he never took French leave. He stood to his post and did his duty all the way through. Wow. So tell me, what was it like as far as sanitary conditions? By our understanding, they were abysmal. Uh, Of the people who died in the war, and more recent estimates put it closer to 750,000. used to be 620-some. About two-thirds of those are from disease, not from combat wounds. They did not know that diseases are caused by germs, so they didn't know about sanitation and keeping things clean. So they would do things that we would find horrifying by today's medical standards. Uh, for instance, if a wound was not uh, looking right, they would take the pus from someone else's wound and, and put it into your wound so it would, it would fester properly. They had some very strange ideas about hydration. They felt that when you're on the march, you shouldn't drink much water because it would make you sweat and you would just waste the water. Nowadays, we know that that's a recipe for dehydration and death, uh, and organ failure. When we do the Civil War marches, we're just we're always pushing hydrate, 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 drink, drink, drink. But uh, in those days, they didn't uh, understand that. And oftentimes, the men would go for what seemingly impossible distances with very little water. So, yeah, it was, it was pretty grim. The interesting thing about the 15th New Jersey, and I've never been able to find this out, and I, I, someday I'm going to hopefully figure it out. In the 15th New Jersey, they had that two-thirds, one-third thing reversed. Two-thirds of their casualties were war casualties, and only one-third were for disease. So they were doing something different from the rest of the Army. And I don't know what it was, and I would love to find out someday. Oh, boy. Now, tell me something. The doctors who were the surgeons or doctors, whatever they called them, who were attached mm-hmm. to sure. these units, yep. were, they, mm-hmm. were they trained doctors or were they, they go to medical school or what was mm-hmm. their background? Medical school was a little bit of a more casual affair in those days. Some of them had just read a book or two, had learned some anatomy and got a commission as a surgeon. Some of them actually had medical degrees from respected schools. But again, a surgeon is, uh, you know, cutting and doing amputations in the bottom of a barn where the animals had been just a little bit before. And they've taken two sawhorses and ripped the door off the house and brought it out and put it down. And that's the surgeon's table. And blood is very slippery. And so you're cutting with a scalpel, severing the muscle and exposing the bone to cut it for an amputation. And the scalpel falls out of your hand onto the straw in the bottom of the barn. So you pick it up and you wipe it on your apron and go right back to cutting. They didn't know that that was infecting the wound. And so uh, a lot of men died from infections, from wounds that today we could have saved them. Uh, my great-great-grandfather's brother, uh, William K. Dow, was shot in the foot. Today, we would have taken to the ER, and they would have, you know, patched him together. He'd give him a shot of penicillin. He would have been walking in a week or two. The wound got infected, and he died of sepsis. Never made it home. Oh, my. Oh, it's awful loss of life. I'll tell you, that's awful. Horrible. Now, speaking of horrible, and I think the answer Mm -hmm. is probably horrible, but what was the food (laughs) like? (laughs) 
What kind of food yeah. did they serve up in these camps? Terrible. They had things they would call, it was, it was salted pork, uh, which sometimes they called salted horse. They had things that were dried vegetables, which they were at the time called desiccated vegetables, which the men called desecrated vegetables. They would have something called hardtack. Think about saltines, crackers on steroids. They were much thicker and much harder. They had about the consistency of a countertop in their kitchen. The men would often take a rifle butt and put them on a rock and hit it with a rifle butt to crack them and put them in their coffee to eat to soften them up a little bit. But the, the, the food was not particularly good. If you could find a you know a Confederate pig someplace and, and shoot it and <laughs> bring it back to camp, but attack me, Sergeant. I couldn't do anything else but shoot it. Mm-hmm. You know, things like that happened a lot. Eggs, chickens were stolen, that sort of thing. Uh, there's an amusing story about a drummer down on the peninsula early in the war, and he's not beating the drum as they're marching along. And the lieutenant walks up and says, why aren't you beating the drum? He goes, shh, I got a chicken in here. And he had a chicken hidden inside of his drum, and he was going to have it for dinner that night. <laughs> oh, my. A prized chicken. I bet a chicken was really a big reward for them if they could get one, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the price the lieutenant had was, I get half the chicken or you, or you can't keep it. And so that night, for, he got roast chicken for dinner. <laughs> That's so cool to hear that you have been able to find so much out about the just the, the daily life and, and drudgery mm-hmm. of these soldiers. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. to mention the hard marching and the uh, battle, dangers on the battle. It must have been awful. And if you got even, as you said, even a slight wound could result in an amputation or death. So That's right. uh, it's something, yeah. I guess, that you really wouldn't have known so much about if you didn't do the reenacting because I, exactly. I guess you have to really sort of marinate in the character that you're playing mm-hmm. on the field to yes. become those men. Now tell me, the uniforms that these men wore, I heard that they were like one-fits-all wool. Is that true? The joke we like to say, isn't it, they had it back then, is that it's guaranteed to keep you uh, hot in the summer and cold in the winter. No. <laughs> it's a wool uh, fabric, which has a fairly open weave to it, and uh, it's meant to breathe. The, the air is meant to move through. It's not like a blanket where you want a tight weave. The reason they used wool, though it seems crazy to us with all of our fabrics these days, cotton would rot off your body after a very short period of, of service. It wasn't durable. It would just wouldn't stand to the abrasion and to the biodegradation. They didn't get the, sh- the water very often, you know, and so showering and bathing was kind of a rarity. And linen was the only other alternative, and that too would tend to degrade over time. So the only durable uniform cloth you've got really is a wool fabric. Plus, there's the flammability factor. You're around things that go boom and throw out sparks. If anything was cotton or linen, it could catch fire, and uh, that wouldn't be good. And wool doesn't catch fire very easily. Uh, as I like to say to, to people when I'm doing this sort of thing in the field, it's, you know, you've, ever, you've seen burning plants, but you never see a burning sheep. The wool was a, a safe alternative from that measure, too. In the wintertime, they did have what's called a great coat. And I've got one, a reproduction of one of those, and it's the warmest coat that I've got. It's layer upon layer upon layer of wool batting and then a wool outer cover. It's got a cape that goes around the shoulders down to about the elbows. And when the wind is picking up and the snow is blowing sideways, I love to put on my Civil War overcoat and, and uh, go off to school because it's the warmest thing I've got. Their shoes were just flat leather soles, no cushioning, no, no padding, no nothing, no arch supports. And they marched and marched and marched in those shoes over rocky roads. It was not the best of uniforms by modern standards, but it was the best they had back then. You know, my wife and I, we went with a couple of friends a couple of weeks ago on a hike, uh-huh. and it was six miles, uh-huh. and we came home at the end of the night. I was like, I peeled my shoes off my feet, and I thought, <laughs> oh, man, we had a, what a workout that was. Typically, how long would they hike, or should I say march, in a day? 
back then? Uh, anywhere from 12 to 16 miles would be considered a normal day. They would move on a schedule roughly about 50 minutes in an hour. They would march for 50 minutes and then stop and rest for 10 minutes and then march for 50 minutes and rest for 10 minutes. It's interesting that even to this day, the troops that we have today use pretty much the same schedule. That seems to fit the human anatomy and the human stamina uh, to have that kind of rest breaks every hour. And they used it even back then. They, they knew that just by trial and error. Right. If you were to compare the hardships of camp life in the Civil mm-hmm. War, hardships of camp life in the Revolutionary War, what were the differences? The Revolutionary War, they were not ready for the austerity of the environment, I don't think. If you look at how poorly the men were housed at uh, Valley Forge and how poorly fed, it was just, you know, the, the army dwindled down to practically nothing because it was just such a rough winter and the men had so little to protect themselves from the elements. I mean, they're in, in basically tents through the winter in the you know bitter cold down you know to zero or so uh, and deep snow it was just an awful time they learned through the course of the revolutionary war how to house the men better through the winter and by the time they get to marstown uh, new jersey near where i grew up in the winter of 79 80 they're much better housed they're much better fed and provisioned and they passed through a much worse winter than the winter at valley forge with much better conditions fewer loss of life less sickness that sort of thing so they learned from that. By the time you get to the Civil War, they learned that they had to get the men into winter quarters and get them undercover and have places to get out of the cold. It was a massive undertaking because we had not seen on this continent armies of this size ever before the Civil War. You'd have armies of you know, 60, 80, 90,000 men. And if you concentrate them in one place, they would suck all the wells dry. And very soon they'd all be fouled with human waste. So they really had to spread them out across the landscape for miles and miles and miles. And then, of course, you've got you keep firewood going because the only thing they've got to heat themselves is little fire pits and little uh, fireplaces they could build in their winter huts. So the logistics, uh, I, I have a friend who works at the war college up here in Carlisle, uh, Pennsylvania. And he says, you know, amateurs talk about strategy and tactics. Professionals talk about logistics. Mm-hmm. It's all about the beans, the bullets and, and the uh, band-aids being able to provision the men with tools to fight, but they also need food and medical care. And if you can't get them that, you know, everything else is just ridiculous to think about. You know, sometimes we look at battles and we say, well, why, did they, why didn't they just go the next quarter mile? Why didn't they just do that? And, and the answer is usually because they're out of ammunition, they're out of water, or they're just simply physically exhausted. And they'll sit there a couple hundred yards from each other, just staring at each other across that space. The battle just peters out to nothing because everyone's just too tired to do anything else. It, it seems silly to us because we're so used to a world in which we can get anything we want at a moment's notice. Airdrop to us, you know, halfway around the world. But that wasn't the case for them. Logistics were hard to come by. Now, it sounds to me that your great-great-grandfather went from just your middle name and a picture on your door to somebody who you kind of empathized with, or at least partially so. Yeah, I, I really do feel for him. He really did suffer terribly for a cause that he, I believe, deeply believed in. Towards the end of his life, in the spring of 64, he writes a letter home and he, and he says, basically, you know, if I'm killed, you'll, it'll just be one thing less for you to, to worry about. He's almost fatalistic by the spring of 64. The difference over the course of the two years that he basically, two almost three years that he served, uh, is quite remarkable in, in the shift of his attitude. When they started the war, many of the men really didn't have any interest in ending slavery. It was about preserving the Union. And by the end of the war, when they had been down in the South, they had seen the horrors of slavery. They understood now viscerally, you know, observed, experienced what slavery was like. They had come around and 
absolutely, we have to end this institution. So there's a, there's a huge transformation in the country between 1859 and 1865. That six-year period in there, it, it's just huge. And we can talk about that in a minute if you'd like to. Yes, that's a great segue. I wanted Thanks. to ask you about another reenacting endeavor that you've had. It mm-hmm. seems that you have started to do some reenacting as John Brown, the abolitionist. Can you tell us yeah. about that, why you started doing that, and what you know about John sure. Brown? I share a classroom on alternate days with a, a good friend of mine. His name is Ed Meliscus, Dr. Ed. Ed stumbled into the story of the John Brown farm, the, the Kennedy farm. The owner's name was Kennedy, and it's become tagged as the John Brown farm because he, he stayed there for a while. And it's a place with multi-layers of history. John Brown's planning the raid to Harper's Ferry to the purchase by the Black Elks organization in the 1950s, where a lot of the early civil rights movement activities were planned, to the uh, beginning of Black Rhythm and Blues being popularized with white kids took place on the John Brown farm down there. So it's a really cool story. So I had put all this stuff together. He found people. The story would have been lost if it hadn't been for his efforts. And uh, wrote this book called From John Brown to James Brown. So Ed and I were sitting in my classroom one day. And he looks up at me and he sort of gazed at me for a long moment. He says, you know, out of every hundred people, you know, I think you look more like John Brown than 99 of them. I had to stop and think, was that a compliment or not? <laughs> and and uh, I said, really? Because I've been getting a little long in the tooth to do these long marches and stuff. Uh, I thought, well, I'd like to do a civilian impression maybe and, you know, talk about the civilian side of the time period with people. And so I went and looked in the mirror and looked at a picture of John Brown and looked in the mirror and looked at him. Hey, you know, you may have something there. And so I began to grow my beard out and read some books about Brown. A year ago, this last summer, I took a trip to Kansas and I got to meet some lovely people out in Lawrence, Kansas. I went down to Osawatomie and where there's a John Brown Museum. Uh, stopped at Hudson, Ohio, where John Brown grew up and talked to some people in the archives there, which was marvelous. And really began to dig into and research the life of John Brown. John Brown was an incredibly passionate man. He was an extremely religious man. I have it on good authority. He had memorized the entire Bible. All of his life, he was raised in an abolitionist home there in Hudson, Ohio. His father was a deeply uh, committed abolitionist. All of his life, he was on the side of not just abolition of slavery, but he believed that black people and white people should be treated as equals and live side by side in harmony. In the early 19th century, that was just, that was just crazy talk. There's one story I love about John Brown. He's up in New York State, uh, up near Lake Placid, uh, where the Olympic uh, ski runs are now. And he's on his farm, and a, a young man and a couple of friends come walking out of the woods. They're out sort of trekking through the wilderness. He happens upon the John Brown farm and is invited to dinner. And he sits down to dinner with Brown and some of the people he's got there. He's got a sort of a little colony of freed slaves there. John Brown addresses these uh, former slaves as Mr. and Mrs., not aunt or uncle or by their first name. He treats them with the respect you would treat another human being of an equal a relationship. This writer, who is himself an abolitionist, as it turns out, is stunned that John Brown would address these people with respect and dignity and treat them as such. He deeply believed in the equality of blacks and whites. We referred earlier to the changes the country went through. In 1859, John Brown was considered crazy for the idea that blacks and whites should be treated as equal. By 1865, we're enshrining the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments in the U.S. Constitution saying exactly that thing. We're ending slavery. We're saying they're citizens and they have the right to vote just as same as anybody else. Very interesting and well said, Doug. I think for many people, John Brown is best known for leading a group of abolitionists, freed slaves, and at least one fugitive slave on an unsuccessful raid on a federal weapons arsenal. This was his attempt to start a slave revolt in the South. The raid took place in 1859 at Harper's Ferry, which is now part of the state of West Virginia. 
John Brown was later hanged for leading that raid. Your research, Doug, and stories about John Brown give us an even better understanding of the man and his desire to end the terrible institution of slavery. He was certainly a determined man. He, he was. He, 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 he set his face like Flint to, to carry out his compassion for people who were powerless to help themselves mm. is almost overwhelming when you look at it. There's a really good book, if you're interested, a guy named uh, Lou DeCarroll, uh, Dr. Lou DeCarroll, wrote a book called Fire from the Midst of You. And I really recommend it if you want to understand Brown. It's the first book that was written looking at Brown's life from a theological perspective. And theology drove everything for John Brown. I love the way that you've really researched not only your great-great-grandfather, but also the conditions that Mm -hmm. he was working under, that he was fighting under, I should say, along with his comrades. But that, that also led into further research into the life of John Brown and the various struggles. We always hear about Harper's Ferry, and often mm-hmm. John Brown is like a little blip in the beginning yep. of a study on the Civil War, but it was a lot richer than that, and you've oh, given yeah. us a really good idea. You've painted a really, really detailed picture of both camp life, battle life, and also the, some of the abolitionist struggles that were yep. taking place before and up to the Civil War. So thank you for that. Back to you. You're <laughs> a family therapist, and you're now a teacher. You told us about your journey, about your great-great-grandfather, and all the research you've done. So how and why did you change career? Was it the study of your ancestor? Was it the reenacting? Was it a combination? What was it? Well, getting engaged with... Grandpa's life, getting engaged with the living history community, the reenacting community. I sort of, you know, I got a reputation as being the go-to guy. I was always talking about Civil War stuff. So out of that came the suggestion to go and apply for this teaching position. And once I got in the classroom, my mother always said when I was a kid that I I should become a teacher. And I thought, I hate school. Why why would I want to be a teacher? (laughs) Uh, So so, uh, I didn't listen to her. I sometimes think I should have. Sometimes I'm glad I didn't. Because the the life that I've had brought a richness to the classroom that I wouldn't have had if I'd gone straight through school and straight into a classroom. I can talk from experience about, you know, a whole range of things. It's not from out of a book. It's because I've lived it. And so out of my experience as a history guy, I got this job at the school and have taught myself to become a high school teacher, along with a lot of help from other people. My wife is amazing in that regard. Mm-hmm. She's a real teacher. <laughs> and that gives me the entree into people's lives in the classroom on a sort of long-term basis. As a therapist, you may interact with somebody from six or eight sessions, and then you might never see them again. Mm-hmm. I see kids year in and year out all the way through high school, usually from ninth through 12th grade. Many times I've seen their siblings. I get to know their families. I have a chance to speak into their lives in some way, shape, or form that can go on over more than a decade now. And I've, I've got kids who have, you know, I've been very, very close to. They've grown into adults. They're married, have children. They still are kind enough to come back and, and be friends with me as adults, as peers. And that maturation of relationship and that continuing to be an influence in their lives just makes my heart sing. I, I love sort of you know, that role of an advisor and a friend and a confidant and a mentor. That's me. That keeps me going. It's very addicting. You know, I could have retired, you know, years ago. I'm over 65 by a good bit now, and, and sneaking up on some more years here. And I've got kids coming up in school, and I think, man, I wish I had you in class this year. That means I got to wait until next year to retire because I want to get you in class again because <laughs> uh, they're just such neat kids. I get the privilege to teach some absolutely outstanding young men and women, and I'm just so grateful for it. And uh, it keeps me hooked. Uh, I love doing it. 
Well, I'll tell you, I have learned so much from talking with you. I have been to some reenacting events that have taken place in my hometown, which the 15th U.S. Infantry, Volunteer mm-hmm. Infantry, took yep. part. And I probably saw you at some point. And, Could well have. And it's a fascinating thing to watch. Tell us just a real quick, what, what kind of things does the 15th New Jersey do? I know under the current pandemic circumstances, you're probably not yeah. doing as much, but what would you yep. normally do in a season, say, with your reenacting group? Well, we would probably do some living histories, which would be where we would set up a, a typical Civil War camp. We'd set up our equipment, you know, lay our gear out on a, on a blanket. And then people could come by and talk to us about, you know, is that real food? Are you really going to eat that? Are you going to sleep here tonight? Is that a real fire? You know, all those kinds of questions. So it's basically, it, it's public education. It's not really demonstration. We might do a firing demonstration or a small drill demonstration, but you really don't get the feel of an 80,000-man army from that. In other years, depending on you know the circumstances, we might participate in a gigantic reenactment. In 1998, it was the 135th Gettysburg. Unofficially, I've been told that we had over 25,000 people on the field. Wow. Yeah, uh, we recreated Pickett's Charge full scale. So when I talk to my kids about what Pickett's Charge looked like in the Battle of Gettysburg, I don't have to talk about what they read in a book or what I saw in a movie. I was there. I saw it. I saw 11,000 to 12,000 men coming across the field towards me and what that looked like and felt like. That level of experience really helps a lot. So there's living histories, there's battle reenactments, and then we do parades, uh, you know, marching in Memorial Day parades, Veterans Day parades, that sort of thing, sort of showing the colors, making sure that people don't forget the Civil War's sacrifices. And then worked on films, uh, videos, movies, that sort of thing, which have helped educate people and help them to see, you know, what things were like. And then the last thing, which I'm going to do on Saturday, actually, is uh, we have the First Jersey Brigade Monument at Gettysburg as our responsibility. And so we go up twice a year. And we cut brush and take out in trees and mow the grass and kind of spruce the place up. Park Service doesn't really have the budget these days to do all that work across the entire battlefield. It's a huge place, thousands of acres. And so uh, different groups, along with us, uh, volunteer to go up there and, and work on the fields to make sure that those monuments stay protected and preserved and accessible to the public and not get overgrown. We do a lot of things. It's a really great group, and I'm really grateful to have a bunch of fellows like them to hang out with. Well, that's terrific. We could probably thank your great-great-grandfather for inspiring you to learn more (laughs) about that period of history. But most importantly, I think is that you're sharing your passion for history with your students. You're probably fostering some lifelong love of history with some of those students. I certainly hope so. And uh, I've had some go on to become teachers. And I don't know if it's because of me, but it might have been in spite of me. But I'm really always gratified to hear uh, hear from them and have them keep in touch. It's a great thing. Doug, I want to thank you for sharing your story with us today. I particularly enjoyed hearing how your research and study of your great-great-grandfather's experiences in the Civil War fueled a passion within you to teach and inspire young people. I'm sure your enthusiasm and knowledge is a gift to all of your students. I also look forward to seeing you at a post-COVID reenactment event, either as a soldier of the 15th New Jersey Volunteer Infantry or as the famous abolitionist John Brown. So for all of our listeners, until next time, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.